You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. again the power of prayer and I would say to you that the things we pray about the way we pray about uh, things says a lot about us it can say a lot about our church it can really say a lot about our relationship with God over the last uh, month we've been looking at some stories in the book of Acts and looking at how that very first church in the very first century functioned And the reason for that is there's a lot of similarities to the way the very first church in the very first century functioned and the way the church functions today. Several weeks ago, we talked about how the very first church in the very first century kind of gathered around a very simple, yet a very profound message, which was about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And when you read through the book of Acts, you find that whenever the good news of the gospel was shared, it revolved around that very event. As a matter of fact, Paul shows us in Romans chapter 1 verse 4 why this particular event was so important to the gospel message. And there Paul wrote and he said, and he, referring to Christ, was shown to be or was demonstrated to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead proves it demonstrates to the world that Jesus indeed was and is the son of God. And that message propelled and provided both the mission and the function of the early church, which was to share that very simple yet that very profound message with others who hadn't heard and to understand and obey everything that Jesus taught. But you know what happened over time? The church got buildings and the church got organized, which of course the church had to get organized. And there kind of began to become a hierarchy. And then people assumed positions and they got in control and people realized that they could kind of begin to leverage religion to control people. And before you know it, things went kind of crazy. And before long, this very outwardly focused movement that was about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, sharing that simple yet profound message with those who didn't know or hadn't heard. This outwardly focused mission began to turn inward. The church began this gradual, subtle, slow transition from being more focused on those who were on the outside of the church, those who didn't know Christ, to becoming more inward focused and more concerned about those who were on the inside and those who already knew Christ. And you know one of the things I've learned and observed over the years And it's not just about us, it's about churches in general. Churches make this transition from outward focused to inward focused really, really quickly. And in most, if not all cases, 
without realizing it or planning to. In fact, I'll tell you this, the gravitational pull of every local church is always back towards the insiders. It always comes back to focusing towards the members and the regular attendees. And churches become very, very self-focused, very inwardly self-focused, very, very quickly, and the vast majority of the people don't even realize it's happening. And when you think about every other organization that exists or maybe other organizations that you belong to outside of the church, they mainly exist and cater to those who belong or those who are members. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the mission. And it's never been the purpose of the church. The church is here to equip those on the inside to reach out to those on the outside with the message, that life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is to infuse, it is to transform our culture and impact it for the kingdom of God. And when churches make this transition from being outsider-oriented to insider-oriented, from outward focus to inward focus, one of the things that happens is we tend to get really judgmental of both those on the inside and those on the outside of the church. And it's just very easy to kind of begin to develop this holier-than-thou attitude. And I'll guarantee you that kind of attitude has no appeal to someone on the outside who may be open to that life-changing message of Jesus Christ. And again, when you go back and you look at that very first church in the very first century there in the book of Acts, it was absolutely amazing. In fact, Acts says that in Jerusalem, even though there was a lot of tension around Jesus and all of the stuff that was happening, it was said the Christians there in, in Jerusalem at that time in the book of Acts that they had tremendous favor with the people because there was something remarkable. There was something unique something winsome, something attractive about those Christians who were a part of that first church in that very first century. And as a result, that very first church in the very first century got big quickly. So today, I wanna look at the prayers that the church there in Acts prayed because I believe there is something there for us to learn to model and to be reminded of this morning. Now, before we look at how that very first church in the very first century prayed, I wanna briefly look at the church today and just kind of reflect upon the life of the typical believer today. Let me just start by making this statement. If you were to look at the prayer request most churches receive, it would tell you a lot about the church. If you were to look at the prayer requests that come into churches, it would tell you a lot about 
the church. Now let me just give you this phrase as it relates to this statement. How a church prays indicates whether that church has strayed. Now I know that kind of sounds a little corny, but there's a lot of truth uh, to that. How a church prays, the things a church prays about is an indicator or can be an indicator of whether that church has strayed. And, and one indicator of a church that has strayed from its biblical mandate is if all of their prayer requests are just for the people on the inside. If it's just for the people who attend that particular church and there's no prayer request for anyone or anything outside of that church family, that church building, it can be a very strong indicator that that church has prayed or is in the process of straying. Now again, there's nothing wrong with praying for those who attend here. We need to be doing that. That's an important part of our prayer life together. But that needs to be balanced with the needs of those outside the church. When you only pray for the people who attend that particular church, it's an indication that that church has, has kind of become very insider focused and it's lost its passion, it's lost its mission to reach and to impact the lost outside of the church building for the kingdom of God. When we are praying more for the needs of the people on the inside more than we are the people on the outside, again, it may be an indicator that we have strayed or that we are in the process of straying away from God's call and God's mission for the church. Now, let's just look at our own individual prayer life. Think for a moment about the prayers you pray, the things you pray about. The average Christian for the most part, pretty much prays for ourselves. We pray for our family. We pray for two or three sick people. And, and that's how most Christians pray. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. We, we need to be praying those kinds of prayers. The problem for many of us is that's where our prayers end. They never seem to get beyond ourselves and our needs. In fact, let me just make a wild guess here. If God had answered all your prayers in the last year, I mean, all the prayers that you have prayed, that you have asked God for in the last year, for the most of us, the only person that would be better off because of those prayers we prayed would be ourselves and maybe a family member or two. And again, my concern as, as a pastor, as a Christian, is that when you are simply praying self-centered prayers, in time we become self-centered Christians and we become a part of a very self-centered church. And again, all of a sudden, this once incredibly outward-focused church goes to kind of this insider-focused church and when that happens, what ends up evolving over time is we kind of just become a church building. 
and, and we can just become kind of church people. And we'll kind of just do church things. And then finally, over time, we'll kind of just start getting on each other's nerves because we've become so self-focused, so church self-focused and self-occupied. And we go find ourselves another building that we call a church. And my guess and my hope here this morning is that each one of us here, we want something bigger. We, we want something better. So big churches on God's big mission, pray big prayers. And I wanna challenge us this morning, if you're not already doing that, that we would begin to kind of start praying different prayers. That we would begin to maybe pray the way the first church in the first century prayed. And I wanna show you how those early Christians prayed. Now, before we get into all that, let me just set this up and then we're gonna kind of jump in. Now, here's what happened. 3,000 people joined the church in one day. I and mean, that was a huge, big launch. A few days later, Peter and John, they're going to the temple there in Jerusalem. Now, you just gotta keep in mind that the temple is the epicenter. It's really kind of the focus of the, of the Jewish uh, religion at that time. In the minds of, of the Jews at that time, God lives in the temple. I mean, I mean, that is where God dwells. God lives literally in that temple. And so Peter and John, they're gonna go to the temple to pray, but they're going to the temple as Christ followers. They're followers of Jesus. And on their way to the temple, Peter and John see a guy who hasn't been able to walk since he was born. The Bible says that he was lame from birth. So Peter and John, they come upon this man who is lame, hasn't been able to walk, and this guy is a beggar. He's been reduced to begging for a living. And Peter and John look at him, they see his condition, and they say to him, silver and gold have we not. We don't have any money to give you but we'll give you what we do have, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and Peter just commands this man, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, he said, you get up and walk. And no sooner had he said that, this lame man is miraculously healed, and he follows Peter and John into the temple. Now imagine that you knew somebody who was lame or somebody that maybe was deaf or blind uh, from birth and all of a sudden they can walk, they can see, they can speak, they can hear. Uh, and, and you know this person, you've known their condition for many, many years. Likewise, as this man goes into the temple, the people inside the temple, they recognize this once lame man, and they see now that miraculously he's walking. I, I mean, the place just goes crazy. The temple just kind of erupts in chaos. I mean, they see this man and they say, you know, a few moments ago, you're lame and now you're walking. And they're, they're, they're saying to one another, look, Frank's walking. He's never been able to walk in his whole life. 
And suddenly there's this buzz, there's this stir, there's this emotional energy, there's this chaos uh, and all of this uh, energy in the temple. Now again, it was one thing when Peter was creating you know, chaos and havoc out on the streets. Now he and John, they are creating chaos in the temple, you know, the place where God lives. So everybody gathers, they're looking around, they're trying to figure out what is going on. The once lame man, he's walking around. Peter, he just can't help himself. He decides to preach a sermon there in the Jewish temple. Now, Peter, you gotta understand, Peter doesn't have any authority to do this. He's got no training. He's not been to Bible college. He's not been to seminary. He's been a fisherman his whole life. He has no permission. He has no authority. He has no right to be preaching in the temple. And so he preaches a sermon. And in the middle of this sermon, wouldn't you know, he invokes the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Luke tells us in Acts chapter four that by the end of the day, by the end of Peter's message, over 5,000 men alone, including women and children, had become Christians in the city of Jerusalem. The original 3,000 people on that opening day, the opening launch of the church, and then hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other men, women, and children over the course of several days. So now you've got about 10% of the city of Jerusalem, and they're turning their attention, their focus, their energy towards this new cult, this new religion, this new teaching about Jesus rising from the dead and suddenly you have just this big, huge, tremendous energy and passion and the temple priest in charge of the temple are like, hey, you have no permission, you have no right, you have no authority to come in here and to start teaching and preaching that. And not to mention the religious leaders by this time, they're already kind of feeling a little picked on because Peter always mentioned in his sermons and you crucified him in, in, in reference to the religious leaders. You crucified him. And Peter would remind them of that a lot. And as a result of all of this, they arrest Peter and John and they throw him in jail for the night and word just spreads throughout the city of what happened in the temple that day beginning with the healing of that lame man. And the people that were close to Peter and John <clears throat> that got this whole thing started, again, there's about 120 of them and they're gathered together and they hear news of this and, and, and they're, they're disappointed, they're fearful and they're thinking, oh no, they've arrested Peter and John. What's next, who's next? They crucified Jesus two months ago. Now they've arrested Peter and John. We may never see them again. What could happen to us? And they're scared to death and they're thinking the worst case scenario. And the next morning, the religious leaders and the temple priests, they pull Peter and John out of jail and they bring him in and they say, okay, what is this thing you're talking about and preaching about in the temple yesterday? And Peter responds and says, well, I'm glad you asked. 
and he launches into another sermon about Jesus being the son of God and Jesus rising from the dead. And as Peter concludes that sermon to those Jewish priests, those, those religious leaders, I want you to note his final statement in his sermon. In Acts 14, 12, Peter concludes it by saying, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given by, among men that we might be saved. Now you just have to imagine, I mean, put yourself in the shoes of the high priest or the Jewish religious leaders in the temple. And here's this guy he just gets out of jail. I mean, he probably looks like he's been in jail, smells like he's been in jail, and he is lecturing, preaching to priests and religious leaders about salvation. And Peter says to his audience, hey, the news I want you to know is this. God has done something truly miraculous among us. He has sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, into this world. And you need to embrace Jesus and Jesus alone because there is no other name given by which men can be saved. Now, obviously, this really bugged the religious leaders. This really got under their skin. And not to mention that you've got this once lame man who now is just miraculously walking around the meeting and he's standing there and everybody there knows a miracle has occurred. So the religious leaders can't exactly punish the miracle workers. So it goes from there. Acts 4, chapter 13 through 14. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. Isn't that amazing? God used then, and God uses today, untrained, uneducated men. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you, I think they're probably some of the most effective at bringing the gospel. And it says that they were amazed, these religious priests, these religious authorities, they're amazed as they see, as they hear Peter and John. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. So the religious leaders say to Peter and John, they say, we're gonna let you go, but we want you to be quiet. Stop talking about stop preaching about Jesus and the resurrection we do not want you coming into this temple anymore with this kind of ridiculous teaching stop talking about Jesus stop talking about the resurrection and quit blaming us for crucifying him just keep your mouth shut and we're going to let you go Peter looks at him fresh out of jail and says Okay, you gotta do what you gotta do. We gotta do what we gotta do. So Peter and John take off through the streets. They find the fellow disciples and they get with them. They're free from jail and everybody just breathes a sigh of relief. Oh, thank goodness Peter and John are back. Then Luke tells us they pray. Now I'm gonna show you the prayer in just a minute 
But if we can just imagine, how would you and I respond at this point? If you could put yourself in their shoes, if you could put yourself in that situation, how would you and I respond in that situation? I'll tell you how I think most Christians would respond. I mean, you almost lost Peter and John. They spent the night in jail, barely escaped with their lives. So what are you gonna pray for? I know what most Christians, especially American Christians, would pray for. We would pray the kind of prayers we usually pray. We would pray for protection and safety. God, protect us from evil. Don't let us suffer. Bless us, prosper us and keep us safe from our enemies. Oh God, that you would put a hedge of protection around us. Again, that's how most Christians, most American Christians would pray. Again, it kind of becomes all about our safety and our protection. And I'm just as guilty of this as anybody. What I want you to notice is this isn't how they prayed. Here's how the very first Christians in the very first church in the very first century prayed in this circumstance. Beginning in Acts 4.24, and when they heard this, again, they're giving testimony to everything that had happened to them at the hands of the religious leaders. When the disciples heard Peter and John's testimony about everything that they had gone through, it says they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now here they're kind of quoting very relevant portions of the Old Testament. In other words, what they're saying is they're saying, God, before we ask you anything, we just want to remind you, we know the one to whom we are talking to. Sovereign Lord. Nothing is out of your control. Nothing happens without you knowing it. You made everything and you're in charge of it all. Continuing in verse 25. Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, again, they're quoting uh, Psalm chapter two, verse one. Why do the Gentiles rage and the people devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city, there were gathered people together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bond servants may speak your word with boldness. Stop and think about that. Can I just make a, a tiny observation before we get more into their prayer? Boldness. You're asking for more boldness? I mean, isn't boldness kind of what got you into this situation to begin with? Isn't boldness kind of what landed you guys in jail? 
Isn't boldness kind of what created all of the chaos and the confusion out on the streets? Isn't boldness kind of what created this antagonistic spirit in the city of Jerusalem between you and the religious leaders? Isn't boldness the problem? And again, I'm just speaking from my 21st century perspective I think these guys already are pretty bold. I mean, they stepped right out there into the streets, untrained, uneducated men, and they preached the gospel. They talked about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and thousands and thousands of people responded. I think you've got boldness pretty well nailed down. So let me ask us a question. How many of you have ever prayed for boldness? Couple, good. Remember the last time you prayed for boldness? Is that word even a part of our Christian vocabulary? To ask God to give us boldness, to speak his word, to represent him in the marketplace, in our neighborhood, with our family and our friends. I mean, we pray prayers every once in a while. God help so-and-so to become a Christian. God help so-and-so be healed. I'm not saying we don't ever pray for people who are outside the faith, but I mean, if you ever truly ask God to enable you to use this biblical word here, to enable you to speak with boldness. Now, I'm not not saying pray for weirdness. There's enough weirdness going on in the Christian faith. I'm talking boldness. Have you ever considered it? And have you ever stopped to think about how this very simple message This very, very profound, yet very, very simple message of Jesus ever made it out of the first century? It's because the first century Christians and a lot of Christians after them had prayed for boldness to share his word. And sometimes I'm I'm afraid maybe we don't think about it as often as we should, much less pray for it. And folks, I'm talking boldness here. Not protection, not safety, not a hedge of protection, but boldness was the first thing they prayed for. And they went on to ask for something even more extreme. Check this out in verse 30. Stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. How often do we ever pray for that. And again, that's weird to a lot of us because again, we've been trained, we've been conditioned to think that kind of stuff needs to happen inside the church. What were they asking for? They were asking to be able to go out into the community, to go outside the walls of the church among people who did not believe, people who had never heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were asking to be able to go out there and, and, and to live in such a way that people who didn't believe, people who were you know, skeptical, who had every reason to be skeptical, 
but see something happening in their community, in their workplace, in the world where they lived that would cause them to stop and say, wow, that must have been an act of God. What if we began to pray this version as Christians? What if we just began to pray and said, God, would you please stretch out your hand and God, would you do something through me and my secular community, among my unbelieving friends, among my anti-church coworkers, among my friends that have been so burned by religion and have every reason in the world not to believe among those who are, are so intellectually smart. God, would you be willing to stretch out your hand to do something in these places where there's great unbelief and doubt and do something miraculous, something unusual. And again, not for my benefit, not for the benefit of the church, but for the benefit of those who don't believe. Now, again, this is important, especially if you're new to the Bible, new to the Christian faith. All the miracles, the signs, they weren't for the people that the miracles were performed on. It was in part, but not fully. Now, don't get me wrong. The people that were healed, it was a good day for them. They were happy, okay? The point of miracles and the healings were so that people would look at that and say, that had to be God. There's no other explanation for this. Tell me more. It opens people up to the good news of the gospel. That was the point. And that first church in that first century was praying and asking God to give them boldness and, and to stretch forth his hand in that unbelieving community in such a way that it would demonstrate the power of God, not for their sake, but for the, what, for, but for the sake of what God was trying to do through the church and their community. Let me just ask you, can you imagine what would happen in our church, in our community, if we began to pray like first century believers. I'll tell you what happens because here's how the story wraps up. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with what? Just what they asked for. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Then suddenly along with, with this boldness, there just comes an outbreak of extreme generosity. Again, not because of a sermon. It was because they maintained their outsider focused and they became more concerned and focused on those outside their faith community, those outside their church walls, as they began to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ with great boldness, there also was just this outbreak of extreme generosity. But again, this isn't why they're doing it. And here's my challenge for us today. 
I want us to be a big church that prays big prayers. I want us to be a big church that learns by God's grace to leverage our big prayers for the sake of something happening that doesn't benefit us in any way. So let me close with this challenge. The way you and I pray is an indication of where our hearts are. The way you pray and the way I pray, it's an indication of whether we're on track to pursuing God's mission and plan for our city and our community and our friends in the marketplace in the world. And here's what I want us to do. I want you to add to your prayer, God, make me bolder, give me boldness. For those of you that responded and said, I prayed that prayer to receive boldness, I want you now to ask God to give you more boldness, to make you even bolder. That we would add to that, God, stretch out your hand, and if you could do something in my life, in my circle of influence, that would cause people around me to go, man, that's God. There's just no other explanation for that. I'm open. Because God, I wanna be on a mission. I wanna be on mission for your kingdom. I wanna be a part of what you're doing. I wanna be a part of your movement in this culture, in this city, in this world. You know what I think? Just as God answered the prayers of those first century believers, I believe that if we will truly, authentically ask and, and keep on asking God to do that in our church, I believe we will see the same results as they saw there. So here's what we're gonna do to close. We're gonna close our service by praying this prayer together and here's why I believe this is so important. You are a Christian today. We, we have the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ today. We have churches today because the first century church and churches and Christians every, every century since prayed big, bold prayers. Chances are the kinds of prayers being prayed by Christians and churches today would have never gotten Jesus out of the first century because again, a lot of our prayers, both as individuals and churches, are all about protect me, help me, don't let me skin my name or my knee in Jesus' name. That's how most Christians and most Christian churches pray today. And again, we're Americans. We're just, we've become very safety conscious. And again, if it had been up to us, I'm afraid we maybe would have never prayed the gospel out of the first century, but that can change. Because listen, God has given the same mission, the same call, the same mandate to us that he gave to those first Christians in that first century church. And if we respond the way they respond, again, we'll see the results they saw. So I want us to stand together this morning and we're gonna read this together twice and I want us to read it like a prayer. And I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up on the platform. They're gonna close for us uh, this morning. And again, I want us just, again, to pray this as authentically, as, as deeply 
as, meaning, as meaningfully as we can. Are you ready? Here we go. Father, enable me to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. And I know that maybe felt a little weird the first time through, so we're gonna just do it a second time. Ready? Father, enable me to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. That's our prayer. Amen. Amen.